Are you co-crazy? How can we recover from this state of codependent craziness? Welcome to episode 387 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Mary, Diana, Kelsey, Jennifer, Russ, Sheila, and Christine. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Mary, Diana, Kelsey, Jennifer, Russ, Sheila, and Christine for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During the show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today, and joining me today is Sarah. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Sarah. Thanks, Spencer. I asked my guests to bring a reading. What have you brought for us today? Well, I had a couple of readings. One was a little more down. So I'm going to read basically the last few sentences of the book because I think it's uplifting. This is the last paragraph of my book on codependency. Healing code crazy is like coming home to our true selves who have always been there. It requires self-love, patience, courage, acceptance, kindness, compassion, and a willingness to save our own lives. Ongoingly, as we practice new skills, we will feel more open, expressive, grounded, free, and less angry and anxious. We will find peace in our hearts as we stand in love with the true essence of our being. We will be unwilling to sacrifice our beauty and power for anything or anyone. Now, maybe we're going to talk about how to get there. (laughs) Because if I had read that 20 years ago when I didn't even know that I was in codependent craziness, I would have said that's impossible. Right. But we're going to talk about that later. I like to, as we say, start at the beginning. Okay. And that is as much of your story as you want to share with us that will help us then understand the journey that you went through and what you and we can learn from it or have learned from it. Okay. I guess I'm in a bunch of programs. I got sober in 1984, so a long time ago, almost 40 years ago. But what I found is that I was having a lot of trouble with relationships. I'm sure you've heard this expression. I got sober in AA and sane in Al-Anon. I was in a doctorate program in California in the 90s, and I ended up in a treatment center because I was still feeling crazy with a perpetual pattern of bad relationships. When you say ended up in a treatment center, now we're not talking about a treatment center for drugs or alcohol, right? No, I had not relapsed. I was just feeling, I used to describe it like this. I always felt like I was a force in the gate, waiting for the gates to open. I feel like I lived in a perpetual state of anxiety. And that was here way before I picked up my addiction. I think my addiction was a way to ameliorate Of course, like we talk about the pain, the anger, the fear, the guilt, the whatever was going on in childhood. So I really believe the codependent behaviors were 
there way before my addiction. My addiction was just a way to help cope with all those behaviors. So after I got sober in 84, I started having a lot of success. I went back to college. I went to graduate school. I became a psychologist. I got married. And what started to happen was I noticed that I was still in a a bunch of patterns around relationships. I still was suffering anxiety. I was very much focused on other people and making others happy rather than myself. I got married in 1999 to a guy, a sober guy in the program, and we had a son together. And he had some depression. And I feel like my sense of self, my level of serenity, my ability to cope, went further down the more depressed he got. So I started to notice that I was way more focused on his well-being than on my own. And that's when I first went to Al-Anon in 1999 and realized that, oh my gosh, recovery is really about staying focused on myself, which sounds so counterintuitive. I always thought I was about helping and changing and focusing on other people so I could feel okay, which is really what codependency is all about. So that was the beginning of my journey. Totally agree with that. One of the ways in which my codependency exhibited itself was this focus on other people, what other people are feeling, even when I thought I was doing it for myself. Yes. That's the conclusion, right? I say in the book, we think we're the good guys. And in a way, we are. I was very attached to how caring I was and loving I was and helpful I was what I thought. But really, the more I learned about codependency and was in recovery on this kind of other side of addiction, I saw that it was still about making me feel okay. It was like the more my husband was okay, I was okay. Or the more my son was okay, I was okay. The question that, that somebody asked me fairly early on in my recovery, there's this social norm of when you meet somebody, say, how are you, right? If I actually answered that in my Al-Anon meeting context where it was safe to actually say these things, usually the first thing out of my mouth early on was how my wife was doing. (laughs) Right. Yeah, today was pretty good because she didn't drink. The good Al-Anon people would then say, but how are you? You doing? Right. I knew that I was starting to get this focus on self-recovery thing a little bit when I could answer how I was without reference to what was going on externally. And that that took a while. <laughs> Absolutely. I've had lots of couples in my therapy role, and so often I'll ask the addict a question and the spouse will answer for them. Oh, yeah. And I get it. It's really hard for people to just stay focused on themselves. And both people get something out of it. Do you know what I mean? That's the thing that I think we don't like to look at that when someone's managing or attempting to manage someone else's life, they think it's all about them and making them better. But really, it's so I can feel better and mm-hmm. I can feel more serene and I can feel peaceful. Because it's hard. It's like when you have a child that they're having a tantrum. 
it's really hard to sit in your own space and let them just have a tantrum or let them just get angry. Obviously, we can set some boundaries, but so much of it, I go to parents all the time because codependency is rampant in parenting because we just are uncomfortable with our kids having feelings, just like with a spouse in an addictive relationship, we're just uncomfortable with them having their own experience. We want to save them or fix them or solve their problems. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have one child who seems to have to learn things through his own pain. Yes. And then he'll come back and say, oh, now I get it, what you were trying to tell me. Yes. He very rarely has had to learn the same thing twice. So I take that as a win now. Yes. We want to teach our kids these things. And it's so hard sometimes because... I will want my son to learn something in particular, but he won't listen to me. But then what you're saying is he'll come back when he's ready and ask me questions. And then he's ready to hear the answer. But when it's my agenda and I'm feeling anxious and I want him to do a certain thing, it doesn't work. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you started into Al-Anon. I went to treatment for codependency. It was in Montreal back in the 90s. And I learned a lot and I did some step work and I did a lot of groups and focused on myself. And I'm sure I learned a lot. But at the same time, when I look back to that experience, I don't think I was ready to change certain things. I didn't even know that my behaviors were unconscious and that I was operating out of a lot of fear. When I did my step work again, you know, we do it over and over again, and I saw all these fears that were running my life, the fear of other people's opinions, the fear of not being wanted, the fear of someone getting upset. I realized that my fear basically got me into most of my relationships, whether it was the fear from feeling like my mother didn't want me, and so I needed men to be attracted to me and want me, and then would stay in relationships longer than I probably should have. So when I got out of that treatment and graduated with my doctorate and started my practice, of course, I met someone else and got married again to someone in the program. And then he relapsed. And that's when I hit another kind of codependent bottom, which I've heard people talking about on your show before. It's not necessarily uncommon that two people in the program get married and someone relapses. It's so interesting, though, because in my mind, you never think it's going to happen to you. You just don't. I married him. He had 10 years of sobriety. It never even occurred to me that it would happen until it did. I mean, which is insane. I'm working with addicts. I see relapse all the time. Yet in my own personal life, I'm not thinking it's going to happen. But it's tricky, especially with someone who, and I'm sure you've heard this before too, when people start having medical problems and then they may need a pain medication or they may need a benzodiazepine for anxiety. And it's this kind of slow process and unraveling of someone's life. And as his life unraveled, mine unraveled as well. Which is what we're here to talk about. Which is what we're here to talk about, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Was this the point at which you went into Al-Anon? I got into Al-Anon in 99 or so, around my first marriage. Okay. And went pretty consistently 
and then stopped for a while. But then when this all happened, I went back again and got really active again. But I'd also done, you know, a bunch of workshops and seminars and always was been the recovery zone. But when I moved back here to Boston, I went to graduate school in California and I moved back here and I worked at a local psych hospital and had a child and got married again. And my life just got super busy, like will happen. And that's when my meetings started cutting back and life became more important and parenting. And then my husband had a surgery. You hear this all the time, started taking pain medication. And that's when things started to unravel. Somewhere in there, you said you, you hit another bottom. Yeah. Was there a precipitating incident or it was just like one day you woke up and said, oh, my God, this is horrible. I think it was over a two year. It reminds me of this woman at a meeting once saying that her husband had been out mowing the lawn and she went outside because she didn't hear him anymore. And he was flat on his back off the lawnmower on the lawn. And she called the ambulance and they went to the emergency room and the doctor said, well, he was drinking. And the woman said, my husband drinks. And it turns out that the guy been an alcoholic for about 20 years. But, you know, sometimes denial being the quintessential component of addiction, this woman totally didn't realize it. And so when my husband started to take some pain medication after surgery, I thought, I'm sure he's going to manage it. He seems okay. And then the next thing you know, he started having some heart issues. His doctor put him on a benzo. And then the next thing you know, he's taking some other medication for some other issue. So it really happened over about a two-year span. And the bottom was when one day I was at home and my son was in elementary school and my babysitter showed up. She came up the driveway with my son. And I said, what's going on? George, my husband was supposed to pick Bo up. And she said, he called me and he said he couldn't do it. And that day was the day I knew that he had to go. (laughs) That day, for some reason, was one of the things. There were several moments of clarity. But suddenly when I realized, oh, my God, my son now was being impacted. He couldn't pick him up. And I didn't even know what happened. Some crazy story he told when he got home about his car, then he got an axe. It was insane. None of it even makes sense. But I knew that my son was being impacted. And then, and I'm not sure about the timing of this, but then another thing that happened in that same time zone, I pulled down a box from a shelf in my closet and a bunch of pills came down. Hmm. So he had been hiding pills up in the closet and they all came tumbling down. For some reason, we think we need to get this tangible evidence of someone relapsing, even though when I worked at the hospital, they would say, look, just focus on the behavior. So sometimes we're never going to find the drug that they're sneaking into their room. But if their behaviors are crazy, then you know it's most likely happening. And so for some reason, I kept thinking, because what happens when you're in that dynamic of the codependent dance is you get all this self-doubt because the addict is lying to you. So I would say, gee, you seem like you're a little off today. Oh, no, I'm just tired. Or it's like the lying and then the turning it on you. Like suddenly they'll say, 
They'll blame you. Why are you giving me a hard time? When, you know, so that, that crazy communication that starts to happen where you get the self-doubt, you start wondering, geez, is this reality? Is he really high or am I imagining this? So it's really crazy. And you think, well, I just wish I could find the evidence. And so when those pills fell down from the closet, I remember thinking to myself, finally, I have the proof that what I've been seeing was real because you're not really sure. I've had people come in, smell of alcohol, stumbling drunk, and I say, were you drinking? And they say, no. I was just thinking, my wife went to a residential treatment after several other attempts at outpatient and inpatient. And she was there for, I think, four or five months. She came home, pink cloud time, everything's wonderful. And we had periodic meetings with the counselor. How are things going? And one one time after several months, the counselor's like, how are things going? I said, oh, everything's great. It's wonderful. I'm not worried about her drinking. And she turned to me and said, well, maybe you should be. I didn't take that as having any like significant meaning until I discovered maybe a couple months after that, a cache of bottles in the closet. And there was, that was that evidence you talk about, but in between she would come home from work early and take a nap. And I just, I told myself, she's just tired from work. She needs a nap not understanding that what she was doing, and I don't know exactly, but I think she told me at least one of these things, that she would go to the grocery store or the liquor store, and of course she spread it around, and buy a bottle of wine and sit in the car in the parking lot and drink it. Yeah. And then come home. And it's just the denial of the evidence because it wasn't overt evidence. Yes, it's very tricky. But that's what makes codependency so crippling is that the addict is in denial about their illness, but the co-addict is constantly questioning and kind of in denial about their own issue. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. (laughs) I'm in pain. I'm enraged. I'm fearful because the focus is always over there. So it's really, it's just counterintuitive to see someone suffering, and yet I've got to focus on myself. And if I can get better, the situation can get better. Now you're in Al-Anon. You've recognized that, wow, there's a relapse. I need help for myself. Yes. Is that that what you're telling yourself at this point? (laughs) This brings you back to the program? Exactly. And I went back to the program. I got into step work again, got back into therapy. And I did all these things that I knew to do from the past. And he and I tried to make it work for about a year. He went to treatment, got out, relapsed, went to treatment again, got out. I didn't let him come home. He went to his daughter's house. He relapsed. He ended up in the hospital. I Post him moving out was about a year or two before I finally said it's over because we wanted to make it work and I have hope for people. I mean, I'm someone in recovery, but it was becoming obvious to me over time that at least in the time span I was willing to give, he wasn't going to get his recovery back. 
And I was much more focused on my treatment than he was on his. So after a couple of years, I ended up getting a divorce and he moved on with his life. He ended up dying from this disease in 2016. And that's what happens. But like I said in the beginning of this podcast, I had to save my own life. And I can only save mine. I can't save this. I can try to be supportive and helpful. But as you know, plenty of people die from this illness. So yeah, I started focusing on myself and it was just my son and I, yeah, got back into treatment and therapy and went on and started doing some more work. And it really was helpful. So that's a part of the story that I think, I don't know. What other people in the rooms are doing? Are they paralleling their participation in the 12 steps with therapy, with other treatments? Because we don't talk about it. We're actually, I think, often discouraged from talking about it. But I do know that in the AA Big Book, there's a whole section about sometimes you need professional help. Right. Absolutely. the 12 steps is not going to solve all your problems, right. particularly if you have some other issue. So I think it's important to hear that sometimes we need the whole battery. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's what I'm about. I mean, whatever works. I've tried everything and I still do. And certain things may be helpful at a certain time. And then you may need something else at another time. And just like with meetings. I've changed meetings over the years. I might go to a certain type of meeting for a while and then switch it up and meet some new folks and hear some new voices. So I do think it's good to be constantly growing and changing. Yeah, I don't want to be stagnant. And I do think, especially with trauma, I think most people I sponsor have been in therapy or are in therapy at one point or another, because that's the thing with doing step work or doing this work. Very often, like when we get sober, we may be sober a couple of years and start to clear up and then realize, oh my gosh, I have all this stuff that I didn't realize happened and I'm still operating from and I'm still living out of this trauma history of mine. And I think that happens in Al-Anon as well. People go into the rooms for a while and start clearing up and then are like, wow, I didn't know that this had happened to me when I was a kid or whatever. So uh, whatever's helpful. I don't think we can judge that. And everybody's different, especially now. There are so many things out there to be helpful. I was listening to another podcast, an adult child podcast, and the host was talking about trauma response. Right. As distinct from the term character defect. Yes. That these are things that come up in inventory. These are things that we need to ask in step six and seven for help with. But she didn't feel that some of these things were defects per se. They're definitely things that she doesn't want to keep on doing. Right. But I think part of it for her is that the word defect felt judgmental. Yes. But when she could recognize that this is just a response to past trauma. It's a learned behavior yeah. from past trauma. Right. Then that for her removes the judgment, removes the per- yes. potential shame feelings and so on from that. And I thought, that's really interesting. We're talking about Andrea. She does a lot about trauma and trauma response and interviews a lot of people. This is how I simplify it. And I think I just see it now after 30 years in a much more simple way in the sense of, 
So we're born these beautiful, innocent beings. We have these childhoods. Things happen to us. We learn these adaptations, these personality traits. We have these protections. We have these ways of relating. We have these ways of dealing with our emotions. They all become part of us. And then that's how we relate to people. And sometimes we get sober and we don't even know, or we get into Al-Anon and we don't even know that a lot of these are just adaptations. We might be defensive or we might be chronically agitated and angry, or we may people please, or we may be chronically anxious, or we may be avoidant. Every single one of those things we could call a drama response, but it's really just how... I guess I look at it too, how I've survived. That's the thing too. A lot of these ways of being we've operated. And that's why, like you're saying, really, there's no judgment. It's just how I've coped and how I've survived. The distinction is what's working now and what's not. Right. If I continue to operate from, say, fear of someone getting upset, So I don't speak my truth and I'm not able to set boundaries. I'm going to continue to get in certain situations because I'm not going to be able to speak up because of an old trauma response where I need to shut down, for example. Yeah, I just try to kind of see them more generally like ways we've coped and survived and then looking at them as what works and what doesn't, what helps my relationships, what helps my relationship with myself and what doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Because that is the most important relationship in your life, isn't it? Absolutely. Which is the thing that's most difficult when you're codependent. Because you're much more in tune with how someone else feels rather than how I feel. And that's why my mantra for my clients and for sponsees a lot of times is, what do you want? What do you need? What do you want? What do you need? Because very often you were trained, maybe from your upbringing, because of fear of what your parents were doing, it was always in that hypervigilance about what they were doing. Do you know what I mean? Rather yeah. than, geez, what do I need? What do I want? So as an adult, it's what do I want? What do I need? When I started becoming aware of my codependent behaviors, of my people-pleasing, of my yeah. deferral of my own desires to what somebody else wanted, I started to recognize where I had learned that, yes, which was in my mother's behavior. What I do know is that she exhibited some adult child characters. Okay. So that came from somewhere. And clearly with the genetics of inheritance of addiction and that it expressed so strongly in the male line, I know it, it was in there somewhere and maybe it wasn't her father. Maybe it was her grandfather or whatever. Who knows? Well, I don't believe in being an alcoholic either. It could have been the way she was raised. Yeah. Maybe people weren't expressing their feelings or they were shut down or they were angry. It doesn't even matter. Yeah. So I recognized this. We were traveling. We were visiting my brother out in California. We were in, in Long Beach and we had dropped him off at dialysis. So we had several hours before we had to go back and get him because that takes several hours. Yep. And it was about dinner time. So I said, here I am in Southern California. Maybe it would be nice to have Mexican. Well, my mother doesn't actually like Mexican food, okay? But she immediately went into this thing. Oh, I don't really know any Mexican restaurants, but let me see what I can find out. Let me look in the guidebook and see if we can find a restaurant. And she started going on this. And I realized what she was doing. I realized that this is a behavior that I had done 
many times in the past. And I said, let's not do that. I'll get that another time. I'll meet that need of my own another time. Let's go to one of the restaurants that you guys know about that you like. Right. And that was such an eye-opening experience for me of, oh, I mean, I sort of knew that, but it's one of those things, suddenly your eyes open, right? That's right. That's right. It's funny because I give an example in the book about that exact same thing, about not speaking up. And you're out on a date and the guy says, what restaurant do you want to go to? And she says, I don't care. When she really does care. And he says, let's go have Indian food. And she doesn't like Indian food, but she says, sure. It's the same thing. It's just acquiescing for fear of speaking up. But the thing is, if I don't say to the guy I'm going on a date with, I don't like Indian food and we go have Indian food, and he finds out later I didn't like it, it's like it's dishonest. Mm-hmm. And then he feels like an idiot. So the whole thing about this delusion of I can't speak my tr- truth because I'm afraid of what they're going to feel and think, we have this delusion that it helps the relationship when in fact, it just hurts a relationship and creates distance. Do you ever listen to the Smart List podcast? It's Will Arnett and Jason Bateman are both in the programs. They have a comedy kind of podcast. And he says, the thing about people pleasing is nobody's ever pleased. You know what I mean? And it's true because I'm not pleased if I have to do the behavior. And typically the other person isn't pleased because it's hard having someone constantly asking you what you need also. So I like that. You've mentioned several times in our conversation that you do have a book, and we probably should talk a little bit about the book, which is called Co-Crazy. I always like to ask, what brought you to decide to write a book and this book in particular? Yeah, I don't know if you saw the movie A Star is Born with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. It's about someone with an addiction. It's a great story, but there's a scene in that movie where he says, look, you have plenty to say, and you just need to have the courage to say it. And I thought to myself, I was, I've been a psychologist for a really long time. I have tons of recovery. I've been in both programs for a long time. And I felt at that point that I had a lot to say. So after I saw that film, I literally just started a writing course. And out of that writing course came chapters of the book. I also discovered that many of my clients, it seemed if they could do two things, speak up and set boundaries, I wouldn't have a job. And so it just seemed like codependency was really the underlying issue to all the addiction stuff that I was dealing with in my practice. Interesting. Yeah. And this idea of really helping people focus on themselves. People come into therapy usually because of a crisis in a relationship or a crisis with themselves, maybe with an addiction. But very often it's a crisis with a relationship. And maybe for the first five sessions, they want to talk about the other person. And it's really part of my work to help them to get focused on themselves. And so that was another precipitant to the book. It's your happiness is in your hand. It's not in the hands of someone else. And that's the basis for the book. One of the things that that I really liked about it as I was reading it, besides the shocking pink cover, the title's Co-Crazy, and then right there on the front cover, it says, One Psychologist's Recovery from Codependent and Addiction, A Memoir and Roadmap to Freedom. So that says to me, 
this is not just a book where you're telling me what I should do. No, right. You're telling me what you did and what you learned from that and from, as you say, your experience treating probably thousands of people. Then a memoir and a roadmap tells me, okay, I'm going to get your experience. I'm going to get your lived experience. And I'm going to get something that can help me make my life better. Right. So right there on the cover, that grabs me. And I'm a person who I love stories. I feel like I learn better. Right. Particularly things about life and so on from somebody's story of how they dealt with it how they faced a particular issue. And that, what they did may or may not work for me, but it makes it real. It's not abstract, and that helps me to bring it in. And so I really appreciate that throughout the book, you illustrate with stories mostly from your own life, I think. Yeah. And sometimes you start with the story, and sometimes it's, here's some information, here's an example. Right. And then you've got a list of sort of things to think about, some questions to ask, maybe dig deeper. I just, I like the structure and I also like your subheading that repeats, leaving crazy tone. Right. That helps tie these things together. So anyway, that's my blurb about why I like the book. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm kind of a simple person and I'm a direct person. Sometimes I just want to be clear. And I think it's helpful. And so to me, the book is kind of clear and trying to have some tools and it's not going to be an intellectual exercise. I say in the book that when I worked at the hospital and my most difficult clients were the ones that wanted to intellectualize everything. I call it the wall of words. And it's so easy. The doctors and the scientists, they were the hardest clients because they wanted to think their way out of it. And addiction and codependency, they're not something you're going to think your way out of because I say it's an illness of the mind, but it's a way of thinking that keeps you stuck. Do you know what? We can deny, we can rationalize, we can be really rigid in our thinking, we can be black and white in our thinking, we can be magical in our thinking, and our feelings can either be totally shut down or like it says in codependent no more the old book it was like you either overreact or you underreact very often you don't feel enough emotion or you feel too much emotion so to try to get that emotional regulation and to be able to notice your thinking without getting taken out by it to me are such really important tools and I think I say that practically in every chapter in the self-help part of the book. Just notice your thoughts. Because the moment I realized that it's not my thoughts, freedom can occur. Because thoughts are going to happen regardless. And to just keep bringing yourself back to your own state. Yeah, I'm trying to find a section that spoke to me here. And okay, so anger. Oh, my God. Anger is a huge thing. Huge. I almost wrote a book just on anger. Go ahead. And some highlights here that struck me. 95% of the time, I feel a wave of intense anger. It has nothing to do with the present moment. Yeah. Before I came into recovery, I was raging. 
and I was raging. I recognize now because of my inability to deal with the addiction that was in our family and because I had been just stuffing, 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 stuffing. And so not surprisingly, it exploded from time to time. Yep. There was always a trigger, but the intensity of my reaction and I'm not saying response here because it was a reaction. Ah, an activation. Was totally out of proportion to the yes. trigger. Yes. And had nothing really to do with the trigger. It right. had to do with this bottled up anger and frustration and resentment. So here's your example. When I get a coffee at Dunkin' Donuts and the server forgets my cream and I completely lose it. It's <laughs> not about the coffee. Right. And so that makes it real for me. It brings me in. I can identify with it. And then it's, how do I move through this? How do I get out of this? So question, what am I afraid of? Because I recognized after some time in recovery, some self-examination, that anger for me was almost never the primary emotion. And that often what was underlying it was fear. Yes. Frustration. Some other things. So then we have a clues here and tips for working with anger. Give yourself a break. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, because I am my own worst critic. Absolutely. Becoming aware when I'm having feelings of anger and then not acting out. Breathe, walk away, take 10, pause. Still got to practice that. Yes. Things still come up that bug me. And if I don't remember to pause, to breathe, yes, then I react not as loudly and violently as I used to, thank goodness. Right. Um, but this morning in a meeting, we're talking about step 10, and that is one of my most common places where I have to practice that admitting I was wrong promptly. Yes. And your anger is about you. Okay, that's a tough one. No, you made me angry. Right. That person made me angry. No, actually not. That person did something I don't like, and my response to it was to be angry. Right. You say that some people can activate our anger like no other, like the woman I've been living with for over 40 years, installed some buttons and occasionally pushes them. My children (laughs) installed some buttons and can push them. That's right. This one I love. Start to get familiar with what is from the past and what is happening in the present. Yes. I don't know if you did any of the Harville Hendricks. He's a famous couples therapist. But when I did that training, at a lot of times they have a couple, each picks something that upsets them or gets them angry. And then there's this way they communicate. The one person will express it. The other person will validate it. Then the person will say, what fear does this activate? What sadness does it activate? And then the real critical question is, what does this remind you of in childhood? Hmm. Say my husband comes home late and I'm really upset and angry in an overly upset way. Then I'll say, what was I fearful about? I was afraid that something happened to you. And then what was I sad about? I was sad that we didn't get to eat the meal together that we were going to have. And then the question is, what does it remind you of in childhood? So I think about, geez, when someone's late, what does it activate in me? So then I'll sit with that and I'll say, oh, my God, I'll remember when I was in seventh grade and my dad was supposed to pick me up after school and he forgot to pick me up and I have this panic. So 
when you have an activation response, yes, it's getting activated in your intimate relationship, but very often it's also activating the unconscious wounds from the past. So that's really what's helpful. And another way to get in touch with that, I just did this with a client the other day. When the person is describing the interaction, I will say to them, stop right there, right now when you're describing it and feel that feeling. And then you say to yourself, when did I have this feeling before? What does this feeling remind me of in childhood? And very often, an image will come up. Something will come up that you see is clearly connected to what my husband or wife is triggering for me. For some clients, it happens when they are having an argument with someone and they don't feel heard. And that will activate an old wound of not feeling listened to as a kid. That's a very common one. And so they'll get angry when really it's about the grief and sadness of feeling isolated and alone as a kid. Those are a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. What I'm saying, 95% of the time you're angry, it's not about the present moment. And that's maybe what we're talking about with the trauma response too. We have this immediate response from this past incident. But really, it's about processing the energetic kind of wound from back then. And really, the only way you can process that is to let it come through and to notice the connection and let the energy flow through. You can also do some writing about what was I afraid of. I often say to people, when you're stuck, to put across the top of a piece of paper three questions. What am I sad about? What am I angry about? Or what am I afraid of? And if you put those three questions across the top of a piece of paper and you're really feeling like something's going on, but you can't really figure it out, and you just free write to those three questions, you typically will get to what's going on. And very often the anger is just covering up the fear and the grief. So I'm talking a lot. What do you want to say, Stanford? I, I want you to say the three questions again. <laughs> what am I angry about? What am I afraid of? And what's making me sad? You know, it's so funny, really, when you think about recovery, because we're born these human beings with all these emotions, feelings, and then we spend our childhoods and our high school and who knows how long trying to figure out how to manage those feelings and repress those feelings because maybe we're told it's not okay to feel. Then we end up in a recovery program and we're told, oh, just feel your feelings. And you're like, what? At that point, I had no idea what my feelings were. Exactly. Or my needs are. Yeah. You don't even know what a need is. Yeah. You couldn't have them, perhaps. As you were talking about what happened in my childhood, one of the things that, that I identified was that my father had a right way of doing a thing. Oh, boy. Yeah. And if I was not doing it exactly the way that he thought it should be done, he let me know in a sort of an, an anger response and where that came from in him, I'm not even going to speculate on, but it was there. When I bring that to the present, yes, I find myself doing this 
in lots of parts of my life and in particular at work because there's plenty of opportunities to, to say, okay, I'm proposing to do this thing. I did this thing and I need validation that it's the right thing. Yeah. And in the job that I do, software development, we have a practice of other people reviewing what we've done to help reduce errors that make it through to the finished product. Yes. So I recognize my need for approval and balancing this practice of asking for review Yes. against my underlying need to ask for validation. Yes. It's a good idea. Yesterday I was writing basically a cold call letter to an organization that I want to try to get something from them. Yep. I wrote it and I passed it by a couple of the people on our user support team who would be involved with this interaction. One of them said, that first paragraph, you don't need it. I was like, okay, that's cool. Yeah. And the rest of it's okay. <laughs> so partly I was asking for validation. Partly I was asking, do you have suggestions to make this interaction better? Yes. I always felt in school, here's another one, like I was not part of the crowd. I was too smart, too nerdy. By the time I got to high school, I did have a little nerd click that I could hang out with. But looking back, I also recognized that I actually was kind of a popular guy. I just didn't yeah. know it at the time. But that feeling of not belonging, that feeling of yes. not being part of the crowd persisted into my adult life, persisted over the next whatever it's been, 50 years almost, that I'm not part of the group, that I'm standing on the outskirts Yes. And I need to be invited in. Yes. You know, I still have that. And there are behaviors that I have that come out of that. I have some great fear exercises, too. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> You're talking about such huge common issues. Like, for example, the fear of not belonging. Yeah. I mean, how many people do you meet that have the fear of not belonging? Probably most of them. <laughs> Probably most, you know, fear of not belonging, fear of not fitting in, fear of not being good enough, fear of rejection, fear of not getting approval, fear of not being loved, fear of not being liked. All of us have those certain fears, I think. What I've understood is there's two fears we're born with. There's the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises, I believe. So all the rest of the fears, especially the relational fears, we internalize when something happens. Yep. So sitting here in second grade and you see a group of kids and you want to go over to play baseball with them and they don't like you play. And instead of you realizing they were being jerks, you think to yourself, oh, something's wrong with me. So from that moment on, you're in second grade now, but the problem is that becomes internalized. And then the bigger issue is now I project that fear onto all human beings I come in contact with for the rest of my life. Yeah. So when I have done different work and step programs and I say to a sponsee, I say, write down all your fears. And then the question is, so you write down fear of not belonging and then you ask yourself this question. When did I first have the fear? What happened? Again, one example I've written about is the fear of abandonment. So I write the fear of abandonment. The memory that comes to mind is I'm like, I don't know, six or seven years old. It's the middle of the night. 
I'm sleeping. My mother's drunk. And I hear the car start. And my mother like goes down the driveway in her car. And then I hear the door slam and I hear my father go out into his car and he takes off after my mother. And I'm in my home and I'm a young child and I think my parents have just left me. So that incident then leaves me with this fear of abandonment. The problem is then I keep trying to heal that in my relationships. And mm-hmm. the thing is, my primary relationships are never going to heal that. I need to heal that on my own. And as a friend of mine in program used to say, the problem with the fear of abandonment is you become really controlling. And then what happens every time you're in a relationship, you become really controlling. And what do they do? They abandon you. So the problem with these fears is that you develop all these adaptations. Another exercise to do is you look at the incident and then you ask yourself another question and you said, what are the behaviors that I've done in my lifetime to manage that fear of abandonment? This is work that in our 12 steps we do in steps four, five, six, seven. I'm looking at the section titled Recovery, Jumping Off the Crazy Train, and I see so much... I'm going to say Elanon because that's the one I'm most familiar yeah, with absolutely. in the topics. And you're just you're wrapping it up for people who are not 12-step people, but these principles, setting boundaries. Yeah. I love that chapter. I learned some things about looking at boundaries and setting limits gives people clarity. What? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. they won't like me if I set a limit. Okay. There's the fear, right? The fear. As Gigi said, when we talked a few weeks ago, it's a whispered lie. Yes. People won't like me if I set limits on them. But you go on to say boundaries set clear expectations. It is silence that leads to miscommunication. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know. Yep. Speaking up for what I want. And then the next chapter, oh, yeah, I'm a control freak. Yeah. And I love you start here. I'm a recovering control freak. Notice the word recovering. Ongoing. Yes, it's ongoing. Oh, my God. I was afraid of not getting my needs met, which led me to try to control everything. And a lot of times in Eleanor meetings, I hear, yeah, I want to control everything in my life. That's why I'm here. Right. And I'm here to learn that I can't control everything in my life and how to recognize what I'm trying to control. It's exhausting. That's the thing. Trying to manage everybody else is exhausting. Yep. Yes. And the other thing I want to say, like you just were talking about Alan and 12 step programs. And the other reason I wrote this book is because I also discovered that everybody has some codependency, whether they're in a 12 step program or not. Even clients I saw that did not identify as a 12 step person still had serious control issues or fears. So I'm also trying to bring this language out into the regular world, which I think it is now, obviously. Mm-hmm, but you mm-hmm. don't have to be in a 12-step program to be controlling. There's plenty of controlling people oh, yeah. out there. No kidding. That maybe should be in a 12-step program. No kidding. Yes. And how we control is also interesting. Here's something that was like this totally new concept to me somehow when I started hearing it in in the rooms. Let someone know what I'm going to do or what I want to do. Yes. I have been hearing this from my wife recently. Like I make decisions about doing something and then I tell her five minutes before I'm leaving to go do something. And she's you could have told me ahead of time. 
I know that I want to go listen to an outdoor concert on Thursday at lunchtime. Yes. So this morning, I sent her an email, said, I'm planning to do this thing. And would you like to come along? Her response, as I expected, was, I don't know if I can. It's not her high priority like it is my high priority. But now we're clear. Yes. Now we're clear. And we don't get the thing on Thursday when I'm like, well, I'm going to work today because I'm going to go to a concert at noon. And she's like, wait, what if I wanted to come? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And I wanted you to be here because it's part of the thing about working from home. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Then you've got a section on acceptance. And this is one of the things that if you've listened to the podcast at all, that's one of my sort of big things. And I found this sentence, acceptance doesn't mean we have to like or agree with it. It means we are finding peace within ourselves, regardless of the outside issue. Right. What a wonderful way to express that. I read that and I'm like, yeah, but I don't think I'd ever expressed it that way. It's like choosing peace no matter what. The Al-Anon expression is serenity at any cost. (laughs) Then we have communication. Co-crazy communication 101. You know, there's a whole chapter in how Al-Anon works on communication. Right. It's the uh, thing that keeps coming up for me and in in shares that I hear at meetings of, as we put it from the book, it's not picking up the rope. You write, don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. Yeah, when we're talking about activation, I think it's really hard. Until you know that your activation is yours, then it's so easy to take the bait because we get activated, we get upset, we get scared, we get anxious. And when we can detach, like it's that great handout, the detachment handout, and know that, okay, their feelings are theirs, their situation is theirs, and I'm experiencing this, and I'm responsible for what's happening inside of me, then that makes a huge difference. Recently, one of my kids who his political views have diverged significantly yes. from mine made a personal remark about a politician. Yeah. And that triggered me. I'll use that word. Yep. And what I said was, please stop. Actually, I said, stop, stop. And then I said, (laughs) please stop. If you continue with that, I'm going to get angry and I don't want to get angry. And he said, okay. Great. I hear that. And then we went on. But you owned it, which was beautiful. Rather than picking up the rope, taking that bait, that response just diffused it. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. It diffuses it. That's the thing with not taking the bait. The argument just goes away. What's that famous Al-Anon saying, too? You might be right. Yes. You know, that was one of the first things I ever learned. Hey, if someone is saying something and you're having feelings inside and want to get into an argument, you can just say, gee, you might be right, and I need to think about it, or I'll get back to you. All those great little lines are so helpful to de-escalate a potential fight. Yeah. So in some sense, what I was saying, and I did not say these words, I was saying, I understand that's how you feel. Yes. I completely disagree with it. And we don't need to get into it. Um, Exactly. And you own too, like this may get me upset and I don't want to be upset. I mean, we were on our way to dinner. Okay. 
Who wants to ruin a good dinner with a strong political debate? Exactly. That's a great de-escalation tool. Here we have don't enable, except you write it as let people experience the consequences of their behaviors. Yes. Another thing that I had to learn by listening to lots of people tell stories about when they were able to do that or when they weren't able to do that and what the outcome was. Yes. I see this a lot with parents. You know, in fact, one of my editors said, gee, you should write a parenting book because I give so many examples with kids because I always say parenting is about the parents, meaning so often it's just about our own fear that we're putting on our children. And I see it literally in my practice all of the time with parents on their kids all the time about their homework or their projects or their this, rather than letting them have some consequence and then suffer, and then change their own behavior. Like my kid who married, I think both me and my wife felt precipitously for what seemed to him to be a good reason, I'm sure. Right. To somebody who turned out to be emotionally abusive, to the extent that after one incident, he felt he had to leave the town they were living with and come live with us for a month, because he was afraid of what she might do. Wow. And is now trying to disentangle himself from that relationship. When he told us, oh, yeah, we got married last week. (laughs) And it was like that. Oh, yeah, by the way, we got married. And I think both of us, I know me, our reaction internally was, yeah, what the? (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God, that's such a bad idea. Why the hell did you do that? We both have enough program to say congratulations. Right. (laughs) And then... When things really fell apart, to not say, I told you so. Of course. People got to do what they're going to do. Yeah. He recognized that, yeah, this was a mistake. And this is the kid that I've said, he has to learn things himself. And he only seems to have to learn them once. So I'll take that. Yes. (laughs) I love this quote. There are two kinds of business, my business and none of my business. I care about him. I care about his well-being. I care about his happiness and serenity. But what he actually does, he's 31 years old. He's living independently. What he actually does is none of my business. That's right. It's great that you understand that because I find with people I work with, that's the hardest one to get. And you're right. It's not that you don't care about people. The thing is, it's my business how I respond to something, but it's not my business what they're doing. Yeah. That's the distinction. People are like, what do you mean my kid doing drugs stop my business? You can't control that. You can control how you respond to it, what you feel and think about it is your business or whatever. That is more difficult when they're still minors. Of course. Of course. Because there, there is some legal responsibility there. Absolutely. It's caring more about the relationship than being right also, because I've learned in my own uh, history of relationships with girlfriends and intimate relationships that we can never tell someone who to have a relationship with. And if we get into it, all it does is create conflict. If we can just be supportive and have our thoughts and feelings about it. But no, I can't tell my son who to date. That's just going to create him to want to date that person that I didn't like or whatever. Yeah, I like the bit earlier in the book about looking at the facts. Yes. 
I think I have done that at times without being conscious about that's what I was doing. And that feels to me like a really good sponsor tool. Yes. When somebody comes to me with a difficulty. Or overwhelmed. Or overwhelmed, say, what are the facts here? And usually that takes some conversations, some questions. I can't just say, what are the facts? And then we'll start listing them out, right? No, (laughs) it helps you to change your perspective and to see things in a much more realistic view. Because very often when we're in the middle of a situation, because so much drama and intense feelings can be surrounding crises. But very often the feelings are disproportionate to what's really happening. I could just say it because I've been overwhelmed lately because I'm moving, I'm selling my house. At the end of the day, be completely overwhelmed. But then when I list what actually is happening, it's not a lot. It's really trying to tease out what are the facts and what are the feelings. It's a helpful tool. When my wife went into this residential treatment program, I was asked to write about what effect her drinking had on me and on the family. Yes. But I don't believe at that time, because I'd only been in Allen on a couple of months at that point, that I was able to separate yeah. facts from feelings in what I wrote. And then, of course, I had to read it to her in a group setting, which just, ah! You know, the point of that exercise is just that, because the quintessential component of addiction being denial and what breaks yeah. through Denial is to say, mom, you forgot to pick me up at school or mom, I saw you drunk last week in front of my friends or whatever it is. And those incidents are what helps the addict to see more clearly. Which is why they did it. But it was not an easy practice. (laughs) What I was thinking earlier, the conversations that I can have now with my child and not saying, what are you, an idiot? Yeah, 20 years in recovery. Okay. I hear (laughs) you. 20 years of working a program, yep. continual program of self-examination, and yes. it doesn't come easy. Nope. But it's so worth it for me. But it is so worth it. Absolutely. So worth it. You know, you quit an addiction and your life typically gets better immediately. It's hard to explain how your life gets better when you start Alan on it. Like, well, I feel a little more peaceful. I'm less angry. What do you do? What happened? It's hard to explain it. It is this taking apart, revealing, clarity, all kinds of things that happen when you start this codependency recovery. Yeah. Yes. Is there anything you'd like to close with? You know what? I was just going to read one other quote that I think wraps up what we were just talking about, which is really important. It's in the beginning of the book. Dismissing our needs, feelings, and thoughts leads us to behaviors that we use to numb out the pain of not being seen. Your needs, ideas, and emotions are all essential. Don't dismiss yourself because it will lead to others doing the same. It will also lead to the accumulation of repressed anger, grief, and fear that eventually will come out on yourself or others. To me, that kind of wraps up also what codependency is. If I dismiss my thoughts and my feelings or my needs, I think it's not affecting me. 
But the fact is, it's going to come out in all kinds of crazy ways that are not going to work. And so that's what this work is about. I did a group on Zoom, and the title of it was Coming Whole to Ourselves, Mm -hmm. because that's what really the healing of codependency is. It's coming home to who we really are and learning who we really are. And I know you asked me what I would say to the new person, and I would just say it's really worth the journey, like you're saying. Life gets so much easier, less complicated, less dramatic, less painful when we can just focus on ourselves. And we can find freedom in this program and in this healing of codependency. You know, it's healing really from the past (laughs) and identifying what's still operating that's not working. And that's what the book helps with. So, Spencer, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. And where are places where people can find the book? You can find the book on Amazon. I do have a website, drsnaramishow.com. And I have a couple of podcasts on there, and I will put this podcast all on. I kind of just started all this stuff back in January. So it's a new site. My email's there. Where you can get the book is there. So any information is there. I will put a link to that in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 387. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery is working in our lives today. What is the first song that you chose? I know you expressed that this was difficult, but I always love to hear what other people are finding meaning in. Right. There's so many good songs. Just recently, I've been listening to this song, I Am Not Alone, really about your higher power, just reminding you that through difficult times, your higher power is always there. We didn't really talk about our spiritual lives today, but that's for another podcast. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? For me, besides all the stuff I already talked about with my kids, a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, my wife and I traveled to New York State, where my parents lived, to work with my brother and sister in preparing their house for an estate sale and then a house sale, which meant making hundreds or thousands of decisions about things and photos and drawings and writings is this something that I want to keep? Is this something that we might be able to sell? Is this something that needs to go in the trash? And is this something I don't know? You know, I'm not ready to, and it's really tempting to put a lot of stuff in that fourth category, which is not helpful because we're going to have to make a decision about it at some point. My father was a photographer. He worked for Eastman Kodak. He'd been taking pictures since he was like five or six years old. He also was a person who kept things. So there were literally tens of thousands of photographs. A lot of them, he took a lot of pictures of flowers. He took a lot of pictures of buildings. He took a lot of pictures on trips for work of people that I don't know, didn't know, don't care to know. And he took pictures of family. So going through those, I had to triage. Is this a picture that I want to keep because it has a memory in it for me or my brother or my sister? 
usually because it's got people that were meaningful to us in our lives, relatives mostly, but also like a childhood friend of my sister, I found some pictures of her and this childhood friend together. Or is it not? Very simple triage. We're not going to sell the photographs, okay? So keep trash. That's exhausting. Mm. Even when it's like, okay, here's this business trip he took to Japan and there's six inches of photographs from this trip, all of Japanese people, I have no idea who they are, or things that he saw, which, you know, brought up a memory for him, but not for me. Take this whole thing, boom, in the trash. Here are pictures that he took on a family vacation going through and flower, 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 building, 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 trash, trash, trash. Oh, my uncle, my cousin. Sounds easy, but (laughs) my wife later said, we're suffering from decision fatigue. Yes. Which led to being cranky and all that stuff that happens when you're not really recognizing what's going on. To some extent, we were able to recognize that and give each other space to be cranky. Using some of the tools of what is actually important to help make those decisions. Recognizing that what I want is not what other people want. My brother and sister are independent people and they want different things than I want out of what's going on. I wanted to go through the photographs. They were not so interested. So I did that. And then being able to recognize the stress that we had been putting on ourselves and give each other space to act out if necessary, to recognize that when I snapped at her, it was not about her. It was about these feelings that to some extent I was still stuffing a little bit or that I hadn't given myself room to feel, I guess. The whole experience of my parents illness and and death, and then the aftermath, which goes on for a long time, would have been so much harder without the 20 years of recovery that preceded it. Just so much harder. What comes up for you recently about how you're using your recovery tools? It's really wild that you're talking about this because literally I can so relate because I decided July 4th weekend to sell my house. And I spent the following three weeks doing exactly what you were doing at your parents' house, which is trying to decide what was going to the storage unit, what was going to the dump, and what, you know, was going to stay. And wow, I moved into this house when my son was going to start kindergarten. And now he's gone off to college. So lots of feelings around being in this town, being in this home. This is where I was with my husband and where he relapsed. And it's interesting because really it's where both my son's and his beau, he and I just have spent the last 10 years alone here. And it's that I talk in the book about the both and like you talk about your kids. I'm both so happy for him. He's moved on. He's got his first girlfriend. He's 21. He's having a ball. He went to Spain for the semester. And and he's just really coming into his own kind of manhood for the first time. And yet I am feeling the aloneness, not necessarily the loneliness. It's more just that aloneness in the house because I haven't been alone in the house. And again, at the same time, very excited for my future because parenting is great and It's a ton of work and it's exhausting. On another hand, it's really blissful being in the house alone 
and not having to think about waiting for someone coming in at night or whatever's going on with his life. It reminds me of this expression in psychology that I love, and it's regression in the face of transition. It was really based on when kids come home from school or you come home, they've been with the babysitter and they act out and they're having all these kinds of feelings. And I do think when we're going through transitions, we automatically, unconsciously may want to go to old behaviors for comfort. So I'm really watching my desires for chocolate cake or my desires for anything macaroni and cheese, anything that I noticed that brought me comfort. It's both. It's a very exciting time and a scary time and a wonderful time and a sad time. It's all of it. So yeah, I can relate. Thank you. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation, leave a voicemail, or send us an email with your feedback, your questions, your experience. Sarah, how can people send us feedback? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of co-crazy. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at the recovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the podcast, including notes for each episode. That's the main thing we have there. But in those notes, we include links to books that we read from or talked about, videos for the music. And there's also some links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. And I realized that I should put a link to the Adult Child podcast on there. I had Andrea on it as a guest a, a year ago or something now, I think. She has a style. She has the stuff. She's the one that told me about your show. Okay. Yeah. I was on her show and she said, oh, you should talk to Spencer at the recovery show. I I did get a little bit of feedback about her style. Everybody's different. different. You know what I mean? Yeah. She has a lot of good stuff. We'll take a little break before we look at listener feedback. What is the second song that you chose? The second song is Less Like Me by Zach Williams. Less Like Me is really about trying to be the best person you can be and not be stuck in your self-centered fear where we're just focused on ourselves. Getting out of ourselves like we all know in recovery helps so much. And now it's time to hear some of your voices. Molly wrote, Hello, Recovery Show. I have become a regular listener to your podcast and would echo what other listeners have shared about this podcast, adding additional breadth and depth to their recovery journey. I started my own recovery journey in June 2021, and my qualifier is my adult sibling. We are six years apart, and I am in my mid-30s. 
In my limited experience, I've found that many people who attend group meetings have qualifiers that are children or partners. In my research, I have not been able to find adult groups that gather together people like myself who are adult siblings. While my home group holds an important place in my recovery journey, it would be so helpful to be able to connect with other siblings, to be able to connect about experiences that are unique to siblings. If you or any of your listeners have any leads they could share, I would greatly appreciate some guidance. Your Sibling Roundtable episode really highlighted for me how helpful connecting with my sibling peers would be for my recovery. Thank you for your service to the recovery community. Thanks, Molly, for writing. I can't think of any other episodes where we have focused on or shared specifically a sibling experience. If you're listening and one of the loved ones who qualifies you for Al-Anon is a sibling, maybe you could write or send a voice memo about your experience as a sibling of an alcoholic or addict and how you are recovering in that role. Thank you. Heather wrote, Good morning. I have recently started attending Al-Anon and in trying to saturate my life, found your podcast. As are so many, I'm tremendously grateful for your gifts and podcast. I was listening the other day and had to laugh as you mentioned making drives to upstate New York to see your parents. I'm in Ohio. My parents are outside Rochester, New York, and my husband's outside Syracuse, New York. I also lost my dad in 2021. He was a science teacher and also loved photography. I have cartons of slides to look through. The majority are plants and mushrooms. I just listened to episode 381 and will listen again. I think this is the stage I am at right now is acceptance. My reality, my husband's binge drinking, my son's both near 30 years old, addressing related issues. While it is not okay, it is what it is, and being I can't change it, I need to stop trying to make it all palatable for everyone. But if I don't do that, what do I do with all that energy and time? Yep. Next step, Al-Anon and counseling in your great community on your podcast. Prayers of thanksgiving for you, Heather. Thanks, Heather, for writing and, and for that little bit of shared experience there. At one point in her life, my mother really got into identifying mushrooms in the woods area that we spent our summers in. So I connect with that as well. She drew pictures rather than photographing them, though. And you mentioned episode 381. That is a talk I gave at a meeting titled Acceptance is a Gift of Recovery. So thanks for writing. Got an anonymous note who writes, Hi, Spencer. I really appreciate your show. Is there any program literature or passages from the Transforming Our Losses book about losing our pet family? Grief around losing a beloved animal or having to put them down. Any experience, strength, and hope about this would be helpful. We are powerless over the diseases in our animal friends, too. It's fresh, so that's all I can say for now. I feel guilty bringing it to Elanon as my fur baby obviously was not an alcoholic, but the grief is very real. Thank you. Well, Anonymous, I've been there. In fact, if you go to one of the episodes from December of 2017, that would have been probably episode 228, maybe 229 or 230. I undoubtedly talked about losing our pet, our dog. I understand the grief that comes with that, and in particular, the grief at having to say goodbye to a pet who is not going to have 
a good life following an accident in our case. Carol wrote, Swetha made a list of four questions to answer about resentment in your earlier show in 2013. That was in episode eight about resentment. I wrote them down and used them today, and it helped me so much. Thank you, Swetha. These are the questions. Why was I resentful? How did it affect me? What did I do this time? What do I want to do next time? In the earlier shows, Swetha said she'd only been doing Al-Anon for about nine months, and I've been only doing Al-Anon since December 2021, so I'm a newbie and appreciate Swetha's newness back then, too. I have a sponsor, and I am working on step four. Thanks for writing, Carol. Thanks for bringing me back to episode number eight, and those are great questions. to continue to think about those myself when I find myself in resentment. Unfortunately, I've lost touch with Swetha, but maybe... She listens to the show and will hear your gratitude for her questions. David wrote, Hello, all. This podcast arrived at a needed time for me. After 17 years of serious drinking and dysfunction, my now adult child went into detox for the first time and then residential treatment. After 16 years in Al-Anon, I had no faith that it was possible for my child to find recovery. Although I worried and lived with fear while drinking, The rehab produced new fears in me that it would end every day. The fear each day of the dreaded phone call of my child leaving or being kicked out of the program. I could not let myself be happy, even with good news. Doubts. Thus, the idea of leaning into faith really was helpful for me. Two choices. I could lean into it or not lean into it. Either accept the spiritual side of Al-Anon in my life or not. All the years of not just mouthing the words, but now actually applying it to my life. After my 16 years in Al-Anon, the attempt at sobriety was unanticipated and based on multiple stories I assumed would be unsuccessful. But as of this date, this is not the case. My child is living part-time with my wife and I as we attempt to support their sobriety. We are in the second month. It is a strange experience. I wonder if you've done a show on living with sobriety or living with new sobriety, what it's like in the first few months or the first year when a family member returns with newfound sobriety, or when the family member is first in a residential program, the do's and don'ts even for very experienced Al-Anon members when a loved one's first time goes to rehab, and then begins the process of outpatient treatment. How to support but not enable, how not to give advice but let go, communicate, balance with detachment, new boundaries, etc. Many thanks for all involved with all you do. David. Oh, David. Wow. Big topic. I'm sure that in the times when I've told parts of my stories in the podcast, and, and I can't really point to all of them, I have talked about some of that. My wife was in residential treatment for several months, and I was very apprehensive when she was coming home from that about what would happen. The several months after that of pink cloud time, her relapse, etc. That sounds like a great topic to visit or revisit. I don't think we have episodes that are centered around those topics, that topic of living with sobriety, living with new sobriety. If you've got experience, strength, and hope to share about your time living with new sobriety, what happened when your loved one went into treatment and came home, how that felt, what you did, how you dealt with fears, etc., please write, please leave us a voicemail, and maybe we can put together that episode. Living with New Sobriety, I think, is a great title. Francis left us a voicemail. 
Hi, this is Francis. I just started listening to your recovery show from a now non friend who shared some of your podcast. Uh, and I wanted to share on the boundaries episode 330. I wanted to really thank you for your service as well. I am a adult child of addiction and I am working through a relationship with someone who has addictive tendencies and I have come out of a marriage which also was with someone who had addictive tendencies and so I'm doing a lot of repair work for myself that drove me to people like that and I've discovered that I tend to get isolated by these people in my life so I'm learning to realize that this is a type of bondage that I need to break free from and as a result I am trying to voice boundaries and put the focus on me continue to work my program continue to work with my sponsor and read literature and stick with the program and not try to look to others to fix or force what I want for myself which is wholeness and happiness and healthiness in relationships but I discovered that it's really hard most people are suffering from communicating their feelings listening to some of the podcasts I hear the frustrations of others who are trying to communicate with their spouses and just have so long because the addict is or they call a fire or the spouse just really in a defensive place and they cannot get to a place of calmness and intimacy and openness. So I'm really trying to work on that myself and maybe that's something that you can bring up with your podcast ideas as to really work on that spousal intimacy with healthy communication and boundaries, and appreciation. Thank you, Francis. This topic idea of spousal intimacy with healthy communication, boundaries, and appreciation sounds like a great topic. I could probably contribute something to that. I love having a co-host, a guest. So if you would like to share your experience, strength, and hope around that topic, please let me know, and maybe we can schedule a time to record an episode. Thanks. Robin left us a voicemail. There are some places in Robin's voicemail where the audio broke down in some way. So you may detect some gaps in what she's saying. I've tried to uh, assemble it as best I can, but I appreciate what she had to say. So here it is. Hi, Spencer. My name is Robin. I live in Northern California, and I don't think I've ever shared before. I've been listening to your podcast for several years now, and it is such a blessing. I have rather a long commute to work, and it's always nice to get some recovery on the way to or home. Anyway, I wanted to share a little miracle with you. A couple of years ago, I was... At this point, the audio goes away. I think she's saying that she was listening to Julie L. share. And I was absolutely astounded and shocked 
because the reading that she chose was from our local intergroup newsletter and the share was mine. So that was really crazy. It never occurred to me that anybody would use that for anything. I was just trying to share my experience, strength, and hope. Anyway, fast forward a couple of years, I just recently started attending a meeting that is an in-person meeting, but outside. It's called Out of the Box, which is kind of cool. Anyway, I went yesterday and I had been asked to be the speaker. So I did my share and other people shared. The moment I heard her say her name, I knew who she was. I recognized her voice from your podcast, and it was Julie. What a God thing. Ooh, I've got goosebumps right now. It was just so cool. So after the meeting, I told her how much her share had meant to me because it absolutely still resonates with me years later. I told her that the share that she was reading from was mine. And we both got really lazy. <laughs> we hugged, and she gave me her phone number. I just wanted to let you know what a difference your podcast makes in people's lives. It's just, it's absolutely a miracle. I just wanted, again, to say how thankful I am for the community that we honor, that each tradition, that Al-Anon 12-step work should remain forever non-professional. No one voice is more important than any other one's voice. No one's experience is more valid than any other experience that we we share our experience, strength, and hope that others may recover or gain some recovery from the devastating effects of the family disease of alcoholism. It's just such a beautiful thing that we do. We really do love each other in a very special way. There just is no other place where I can go, no other people with whom I can speak that will nod in understanding or smile or chuckle at things that I used to find horrifying but now am able to laugh at. It just nobody else. Julie and I were saying how much we really love the rapport between you and Eric. I love that Eric always looks up the definitions of things. I think it's awesome. I do the same. I'm a bit of a nerd. But anyway, thank you again. I thank you every day. I thank you every time I listen to your podcast. I thank Julie and all of the other people who were so generously giving of themselves and so raw and so open and so vulnerable to share their experience, strength, and hope for all of us. It's quite the coincidence, and maybe it's not a coincidence. The episode that Robin is talking about is episode 331, titled Choosing Love Over Fear One Day at a Time, with Julie L. as guest. Thanks for writing, Robin. Louise from Oregon sent us a note. Thank you for including my share in last week's episode on loss and grief. I have a topic suggestion. I was the scapegoat of very profound bullying in school as a child. Being a people pleaser and needing to get approval from parents and teachers set me on that path. It has continued throughout my life. 
I'm grateful that we didn't have social media back in my childhood because I could have been bullied even worse. Eventually, it escalated to a point of protest buttons saying, I hate Louise, were made and worn by the bullies, and the stuff hit the fan. The adults finally recognized that they had to intervene. Thirteen years ago, my primary bully found me through Facebook and begged me to forgive her. There have been many other incidents in my life, but she's the only one who has reached out to me like that. She's a writer and wrote a magazine article about the experience. It showed up on my Facebook feed this week. I think that being a bully or being bullied is probably something many codependents have experienced. Louise from Oregon. Thank you for sharing that painful experience, Louise. Again, a topic idea using recovery tools to recover from bullying, either as a bully or having been bullied, something like that. If you're interested, reach out. Thanks. Patrick suggested a book titled The Last Ocean, What Dementia Teaches Us About Love by Nikki Gerard. I'll put a link to that book in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 387. Anonymous asks, Good day. I was wondering if you knew of any men's Al-Anon groups online. And what I responded was, if you go to alanon.org, the website, select Electronic Meetings under the Meetings menu, then click the Advanced Search box, and then under Meeting Type heading, you can find a checkbox labeled Men. And if you click on that, it lists currently over a dozen meetings. Most of them are on Zoom, ones in the Alanon app. And I think one is an email meeting. Never done an email meeting, but that sounds like a possibility, particularly if you're in a time zone that doesn't make it easy to attend any of the of the other meetings. So that's where the ones that Al-Anon World Service Office knows about can be found. Britt left a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for this podcast. I've been to a couple of meetings, but didn't feel comfortable due to social anxiety. This has been a wonderful stepping stone for my healing journey. I'm starting from the first episode and working my way through. Take care, Britt. Britt, thanks for the review, and I'm glad to hear that you are finding some recovery and hopeful that at some point you'll be able to go to a meeting, whether it's in person or online. Ruth wrote about the loss and grief episode number 386. This was a wonderful talk, and I got so much out of reading it. I didn't see the button where I might have heard the audio version until I finished reading it. You spoke from the heart. Having lost many people I loved over the last five or six years, I was deeply moved by your honesty. I studied the grief book, Transforming Our Losses, in my Al-Anon meetings before the main meeting began. It was helpful. My brother had three kinds of dementia the last four years of his life. Now my 85-year-old cousin told me of her diagnosis last week. I knew she was having memory problems, but until she heard a neurologist tell her she has dementia, she was in denial. It's sad. Reading this was very helpful. I turned 78 in June, and I've survived cancer and open-heart surgery. This was a good reminder I need to stay in the present moment and keep working the steps in Al-Anon and OA, because it will continue to help my recovery. Thank you, Ruth G. S.A. wrote, Hi, Spencer, it's S.A. We did a segment on taking risks last October. And side note, that is episode 372, titled Embracing Risk. S.A. continues, I heard a caller leave a message on your podcast a while back asking for a segment on losing a qualifier to suicide after she lost her husband in this way. 
Sadly, I lost one of my qualifier loved ones earlier this year when he chose to end his life while actively in the disease. My recovery was the primary, in fact, probably the singular thing that has carried me through the heartache. I know my loved one is recovered now. I just wish it had been through a different means. S.A. Thank you for sharing that, S.A. I can't even actually imagine how difficult that would be. So thank you for sharing. Lisa wrote, Dear Spencer, I absolutely love your podcast. A close friend of mine is finally in rehab for alcohol, and her husband is looking for some kind of a good podcast for their son, who is 17 years old and really suffering because of what his mom has been through. I'm wondering if you can recommend a good podcast for him. Thank you for all your incredible work and service to this world. With love and kindness, Lisa K. Thanks, Lisa, for writing. Of course, there is the Recovery Show podcast, although I don't know how much a 17-year-old is going to relate to most of what we talk about. But one suggestion might be to listen to stories of other alcoholics. That helped me a lot to begin to understand what my wife was going through, and it was easier to hear it from other people than from my loved one. For that, I might suggest the Sober Speak podcast, which is at soberspeak.com slash podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 387. And finally, a suggestion is to go to online or in-person Alateen meetings. I'll put a link to the Alateen meeting list in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 387. Thank you all for writing or calling. Sarah, I want to just thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for writing this book because there is so much in there that maybe just gives me a different perspective on stuff I already knew. And that is always helpful for my ongoing, continuing progress in recovery. And we're going to close with your third song selection. The third song is Starting Over by Chris Stapleton, which you can listen to recovery.show slash 387. I just love this song. It came out over the pandemic and it just reminded me that we can start over anytime. Any time of our lives, any time of our day, any hour of the day, <laughs> we can start over. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.